MSW Media. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say of Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broke? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Welcome to episode 55 of Jack the podcast about all things special counsel. It is Sunday, December 17th, 2023. I'm your host, Andy McCabe. Hey, Andy. I'm Allison Gill. Wow. Okay. So this week was probably the most consequential week in the D.C. case against Trump, or even in modern history. Uh, (laughs) The D.C. trial (laughs) is currently- It was a week that we're living in for me. (laughs) Yes, it definitely is. Um, So the D.C. trial is now on hold. It is stayed in a ruling by Judge Chutkin. And Jack Smith has played his draw four, reverse draw four combo cards (laughs) by leapfrogging the appeals court to petition the Supreme Court to hear Trump's immunity appeal, effectively boxing the former president in. And not only that, of course, but SCOTUS has agreed to hear the Fisher case, which, of course, is about how to interpret Title 18 U.S.C., our favorite, Section 1512C2, which over, th- what, 300 January 6 rioters and Donald Trump are charged with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and today we're going to discuss that case with University of Texas law professor Steve Vladek. I am so glad he's joining us to explain this. <laughs> um, and if all that weren't enough... We have Jack Smith's notice of experts he plans to call at trial that will show who was using Trump's phone on January 6th and where they were, which is, uh, you know, what we were talking about with that Twitter uh, search warrant. We have a missing binder of highly classified Crossfire Hurricane documents. I don't know if you know anything about Crossfire Hurricane, Andy, but... I know a couple things about it. A little more than I'd prefer to know at this point, actually. (laughs) (laughs) But... It seems to never die. (laughs) We also have Jack Smith's response to Trump's ridiculous, overbroad, immaterial motions to compel discovery. Uh, We have the DOJ getting John Eastman's disbarment transcripts. Goody. And uh, repeated outreach from Trump and his pals to a cooperating witness in the Mar-a-Lago case. So any thoughts that this thing would slow down in December has gone right out the window. That's absolutely right. And, you know, it can't slow down because we all know that Trump's interlocutory appeal on immunity and double jeopardy grounds must be decided before jury selection is set to begin on February 9th, which is less than two months away. So what? let's say we start there. Sounds good? Yeah, yeah. It was like a bam, 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 bam. We got appeals court, SCOTUS, appeals court, SCOTUS, like all all in a day or two. I mean, it was so fa- And, you know, you and I talked about uh, imagining that this would go quickly based on the appellate court's expedited briefing schedule in the limited gag order. They heard That's that right. lickety split, right? We're like, they're going to, I'm like, they're going to go fast on this. And boy, boy, did they. Yeah, yeah. They've been very responsive so far. And, and that, fortunately, that uh, that is holding firm. So, Here we have Jack Smith, who filed uh, for a motion for expedited review at the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals on December 11th. That same day, the appeals court granted expedited review and ordered Trump to respond on the 13th 
and DOJ to respond on the 14th. So that's that very responsive hustle, hustle approach. Two days. Yeah. They're getting (laughs) diving right into it. So then out of the blue, taking everybody by surprise, I literally couldn't even sort through the orders as this news was breaking (laughs) one after another. I'm like, hold on a second. Are they getting the names of the courts wrong? Yeah. Because Smith then filed with the Supreme Court for expedited consideration of a petition for cert right after he filed with the circuit court. So same issue, and he's hitting two courts at the same time. So in the Supreme Court, he asked them to rule before the appeals court, but also said, you know, let them know that he had just filed for expedited review with the appeals court as well in case SCOTUS doesn't grant cert before the appeals court makes their decision. Hmm. That went, yeah. it went so fast. Yeah. Because I actually saw the SCOTUS filing before I saw the appellate court filing. And I was like, in the SCOTUS filing, he's like, I filed with the appeals court. And I was like, oh, shit. So I went back and I looked. I was like, he <laughs> sure back. did. Double he sure, back. <laughs> he sure did. There pace, it is. Your Pacer account's getting a workout this week. <laughs> yeah. Right. So same day, uh, Supreme Court granted expedited review to consider cert and orders Trump to respond by December 20th. And Andy, that's just, that's not granting cert, right? That's just no. granting the expedited review to consider cert. And when I say cert, I mean a writ of certiorari, which is basically the what, what it's called when the Supreme Court says, we will take up a case. And of the thousands and thousands and thousands of cases that are filed, only about 60 or so are granted cert. Every year. That's right. Every year. The Supreme Court doesn't have to take anything. There's no automatic appeals to the Supreme Court. As you said, uh, litigants, they file a petition for certiorari and the Supreme Court gets thousands. They consider them all. Sometimes they, you know, they have like briefings and they do a kind of a formal consideration. Sometimes they just deny it, right? You know, and with a one page order, you know, cert, your petition for cert is hereby denied. Yep. Or they'll do that old shadow docket thing, which, uh, is a good book you should buy by Steve Laddick, who will join us in the second part of the show. There you go. There you go. So so that happens, right? Trump now has to respond to this uh, government appeal or request for cert, and uh, his response is due December 20th. On the 13th, Trump filed his opposition to expedited review with the appeals court. So now we're back in the appeals court, arguing that the whole thing amounts to election interference, shock of all shocks. And having his brief due December 26th essentially makes Jack Smith the Grinch trying to ruin his Christmas. He even quoted Dr. Seuss in his filing. (laughs) Not usually seen as a, you know, a lot of precedent in court, federal court filings, you know, citing Dr. Seuss. But hey, here you go. Yeah. Well, you know, Grinch v. Seuss. That's uh, right. Or no, excuse me, Grinch v. Whoville. Um, the the very important uh, landmark case. Personally, I see Jack Smith more as a traditional Grinch, not like the Jim Carrey Grinch. I feel like he'd go old school back mm-hmm. to the animated Grinch. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. So DOJ's response wasn't due until the 14th, and they filed it on the 13th and said, okay, fine, have Trump's response due on the 23rd before Christmas. <laughs> So the appeals court comes back same day and grants Jack Smith motion, setting the briefing schedule as follows. Trump's response to Jack Smith's uh, request for expedited review by the by the appeals court. Trump's response is due the 23rd. And this is on the merits. This isn't to consider. That's right. This is the full blown federal court briefing. 
And then DOJ, of course, gets their opportunity to respond to Trump's filing, and that would be due on the 30th, and then Trump's reply is due on January 2nd. So the date for arguments of this uh, motion, that's not not been set yet, but I think it's fair to assume that it'll be sometime in that first or second week of January. Yeah, it'll be fast considering their extremely fast uh, expedited uh, review, and then and then Christmas is saved. Trump doesn't have to respond. There you go. On Boxing Day, he has to do it on the twenty third. They're like, we're going to be toiling throughout the holidays. They're like, great, toil before the holidays, <laughs> and get it to us on the twenty third. <laughs> Trump and little Cindy who can yeah. uh, recline in, in peaceful slumber on, on Christmas. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, what do you think? What do you think of this uh, this move to you know, push things potentially right into the Supreme Court. Well, this I think this is brilliant, right? Because, you know, Trump forever. I'm going to appeal this to the Supreme Court. I'm going to do it. I'm going to appeal this immunity to the Supreme Court. And Jack's like, cool. How about now? And he's like, yeah. no, wait. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> That's not what oh, I wait. meant. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, he would have rather gone through the regular process of having the appellate court make their determination, then file petition for cert with the Supreme Court and have them consider it, then Jack would file to have an expedited consideration. And then they would agree and have briefings on just whether or not they're going to hear it. And then they would decide whether they're going to hear it. Then they would schedule arguments. This all happened, by the way, 50 years ago, this year, well, next year, 1974, uh, when they were trying to get the Watergate tapes, right? Yeah. I mean, could there possibly be a better analog? I mean, look, it's a, no. the, the the case that matters most is U.S. v. Nixon, another case against a wildly corrupt president. Yeah, it's 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 I think it's, you know, Jack Smith is in a good position in terms of the case law that he's relying on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Trump, of course, argues that SCOTUS very rarely takes these cases before the appellate court has had a chance to decide but it's been done 19 times since 2019 and 49 times total. And then, of course, we said it's very close to the U.S. v. Nixon case, which is also the closest uh, substantive uh, precedent relative to this issue. U.S. v. Nixon, of course, decided that Nixon was not immune. Or he had to hand over the tapes. He wanted to quash that uh, the tapes from being subpoenaed, right? Correct. A subpoena for the White House recordings. SCOTUS took, um, they scheduled the hearing, the arguments two months after they granted cert. Yes. And of course, the significance there is they determined that unlike the civil immunity that a president enjoys from most of what he does while he's in office, there's a different standard for criminal liability and that the, a lot of those protections the president has kind of falls away when he finds himself in the middle of a criminal investigation. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is this really ties Trump's hands, right? And uh, this is the first thing that crossed my mind. And Hugo Lowell also pointed it out in The Guardian, uh, because Trump can't really oppose Jack Smith's request for the Supreme Court to hear the case and then come back later and ask him to hear the case, right? Exactly. Like it's, it's, it doesn't quite work that way. And so, you know, I, I see a couple of different potential scenarios happening here. I, I see, you know, after they get Trump's filing on the 20th, Supreme Court might deny cert and not deny cert on the merits, just deny cert to hear it before the appellate court goes. 
But the appellate court will be fully briefed by January 2nd. And by the time SCOTUS makes that decision, the appellate court may have already ruled. But I don't know. We'll see what it's like a horse race here. We'll see how the timing plays out. But if SCOTUS denies cert, we will be very close to or already have an appellate court decision. And then Jack can reapply for cert, go right back to the Supreme Court and say, how about now? Uh, And then the Supreme Court, if they deny cert again, that means the appellate court ruling stands. If they grant, then we see how long they take to set an argument and how long they take to make a decision. In in Nixon, like I said, it took two months to get the arguments and then another 16 days to render the decision. But another really interesting parallel, Andy, between this and uh, Watergate is that at the time, there were three Nixon appointees sitting on the Supreme Court. Wow. One of them did not vote, uh, and the other two voted against Nixon of the three that he had appointed. Now we've got Trump with three appointees sitting on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Will Thomas recuse is the big question, right? Everyone's like, nah, hell no, he won't, he won't. But I do want to remind everybody, just this last October, Thomas recused from a case that had to do with Eastman because Eastman and Ginny were emailing, oh, well, we don't know why he recused. It could have been something like... Yeah. One of the lawyers he clerked with or did, you know, who knows why he recused, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. And we might get that one no vote and and two voting no. If anybody votes in Trump's favor, I'm assuming it would be Thomas if he votes uh, and Alito. Uh, So I think a worst case scenario, we're looking at a seven two, but it could be a seven one just like in Nixon. Well, that was (laughs) eight oh. Nobody voted for Nixon. (laughs) Yeah, really, really interesting. I mean, oh, yes, Thomas could recuse, but there's also plenty of Jan 6 business he's not recused from. So it's I think it's a very much an open question. Question I have for you is reminding ourselves that this is entirely about Trump's motion to dismiss based on constitutional grounds, the immunity issue. There is another motion still pending that Chutkin has not decided on statutory grounds. And she kind of severed those two things in terms of her, you know, addressing them and, you know, deciding them, likely because she wanted to push the one that would drive an interlocutory appeal, this one, the immunity issue, forward to try to get that, you know, get that business done in time. Question is, could it have inadvertently created an opportunity for a totally separate and new delay with the once the statutory issue gets decided by Chutkin, you can you can just assume that Trump's going to appeal all that stuff as well. I guess it won't be interlocutory, so it's not quite as significant as the constitutional issue. But I'm just trying to say we're not out of the woods from Trump really dragging the heels of this case uh, through the mud with appeal after appeal. Yeah, I know she still has to decide on statutory and I think um, vindictive and selective prosecution motions to mm-hmm. dismiss and. She can't do any of that right now while it's stayed because that's, that's the right. next story of the day, right? Judge Chuck can officially stay the D.C. case pending the outcome of the immunity appeal. The DOJ opposed the stay, but not pretrial schedule and trial stay. They opposed that because Trump contended that Judge Chuck can has no jurisdiction whatsoever while the appeal makes its way through the courts, the DOJ contended that Judge Chutkin does, and Judge Chutkin agreed. She says she still has jurisdiction when it comes to enforcing the protective order over discovery. Of course. Enforcing bail conditions and enforcing that limited don't call it a gag order, gag mm-hmm. order. And so that was her ruling there. That's why I 
contend that this trial will get pushed back a little because February 9th to start jury selection, I mean, they can start that process if by February 9th, this immunity thing is adjudicated and exhausted. They can start that process, but they still will have to rule on those motions. They don't, like you said, have to deal with the appeals before the trial starts because those appeals can go on in the background, right? Because they're not interlocutory. They're not constitutional in nature. But there, there also is, are some SEPA things that have to take place because there's a limited amount of um, classified information in this particular case. I know that right before Judge Chutkin stayed this case, um, Jack Smith filed a 6A SEPA motion, and that made Trump very angry. You, you have to stop. Everything must stop. <laughs> and he's like, we haven't gotten a ruling yet, You're bro. harassing me. You're <laughs> harassing me. Yeah. So that that's kind of the way that I see it uh, is you're, we're going to still need some time because if this if everything stops for a month or two, anything that could have happened in that month or two in pretrial stuff will now be pushed back a month or two. I'm honestly thinking that this trial goes off in April, May, maybe June, the latest. That's kind of my thought on on this. I, I don't think March 4th will hold. I really don't. But I don't think it'll be pushed much further back. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it'll hold either. I think she knew it wasn't going to hold, even despite her uh, her very strong uh, comments repeatedly that it would go on that date. I think in the back of her mind, she knew something like this could come up, and it would unavoidably push things back a bit. I think that's why she picked March fourth because it, uh-huh. she still's got some runway to get this thing done before the election. If March fourth starts to slip. Well, we talked about that a lot, right? Like we, because they wanted January. Jack Smith wanted January, and Trump wanted, you know, twenty five years from now. But yeah. you know, we were like, March is good. It can still be delayed and still happen before the election, or even the convention, the Republican National Convention, which is July fifteenth. Uh, but this is a three to four month trial, and and everyone who's like, but May is the documents case? No, it isn't. <laughs> only in a dream (laughs) many moons ago that's what that's what it was yeah yeah it's still may but it's may 2025 maybe totally um and one last thing that happened uh this week judge michael luddig a well-respected conservative judge uh have filed uh an amicus brief with the supreme court in the immunity uh thing right now that's right of course jack smith is arguing if you give immunity to a president America is not America, basically. But Judge Ludwig's like, even that aside, even if you want to make America not America, um, (laughs) and him and him and a couple of dozen, a dozen other. Assuming we're going to be Hungary from now on, it's still a problem. (laughs) It's it's still a problem. And this is uh, Ludwig et al. A couple dozen Republicans that served under five presidents have filed the amicus brief. And what they're arguing is that you would screw up Article 2, Section 1, Clause 1 of the Constitution that says a president can only serve a four-year term. If you grant immunity, that means a president doesn't have to leave. And and by the way, that means Biden wouldn't have to leave if you if you grant That's immunity. Right. So just on the very narrow question of how anti-constitutional it is to upset Article 2, uh, uh, Section yeah, 1, Clause it, 1. And the same applies across the board, right? If you're saying the president cannot, cannot be held criminally liable, then he basically can violate any law, including those that require him to leave. 
Mm-hmm. Or anything but, else. So, mm-hmm. but if you, you want to, but they're responsible like, if, for that. But they're like, if you want to rule on this narrowly, you have to consider Article Two, Section yeah. One, Clause One. If you want to just talk about this particular, because sometimes SCOTUS does that; they rule on stuff narrowly. This question of absolute immunity is the, is the brick that even you pull it out, the entire wall falls down. Yeah, they're not going to. I am a hundred percent sure that the Supreme Court yeah. is not going to grant Trump immunity if no they chance. take the case. No even, way. You know, from what if you listen carefully to, um, you know, even on on my network, uh, listen to some of the CNN reporters who are very well sourced in the Trump legal world. Um, they are. You'll hear that even Trump's own lawyers know there's almost no merit to this whatsoever. It's not nope. so frivolous that it would be the sort of thing that would get dismissed and could provoke sanctions. But it doesn't really have any chance of winning. And they know that. It's all about delay. Yep. That's that's the whole purpose. Yeah. Andy, what do we have next? So next up, we've got uh, another really interesting SCOTUS development. The other major SCOTUS development this week, I guess, um, on the Trump cases anyway. And this is the one that really grabbed my attention and, and kind of threw me into a bit of a panic when I first heard it. So this is the fact that SCOTUS has now agreed to take up the case a case related, it's a bit of a bank shot, but related to the Trump indictment. And this is a case called Fisher. You're going to remember Fisher is a January 6th rider, and he was charged with 1512C2. And early on in his case, he filed a motion to dismiss his indictment, at least the charge of obstructing the official proceeding, the 1512C2. And his judge, his trial court judge, Judge Nichols, who's a Trump appointee, Interpreted 1512C2 to mean it must include destruction or alteration of a document or other record. Hmm. Okay, so so you'll remember, A.G., this 1512C2 came into effect as a result of Sarbanes-Oxley, which was a, a bunch of laws passed in the wake of the Enron scandal and, and other kind of accounting and white-collar misdeeds in the early 2000s. And this one specifically was meant to target businesses who destroyed records, documents, data, that sort of stuff uh, to avoid an official proceeding or an investigation or something like that. So Nichols was one of only 16 judges that disagreed with DOJ's interpretation of the statute. Uh, And the appeals court, of course, ruled in favor of DOJ. So um, now the Supreme Court has agreed to hear the case this term. Uh, I've got a lot of questions about this and how it might affect uh, Trump's case and of course, we have just the person to answer them. After the break, we're going to talk to University of Texas law professor and self-proclaimed SCOTUS nerd, Steve Vladek. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... 
How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Joining us today to discuss the Fisher case headed to the Supreme Court is University of Texas law professor and author of the book. You need to get it. It's called The Shadow Docket. Please welcome Steve Vladek. Hi, Steve. Hey, Allison. Great to be back. Great to have you here, Steve. It's uh uh, totally a bonus for our listeners and uh, great for us as well. So thanks for doing it. Thanks, Andy. Great to, great to be with you. Cool. So the first thing I want to ask you, um, everybody seemed to get a little concerned about the Supreme Court taking up the Fisher case. And we've explained the Fisher case. Fisher is a January 6th rioter who wanted his charge obstructing an official proceeding, which is uh, Title 18 U.S. Code 1512 C2, dismissed. And Judge Nichols, a Trump appointee, ruled that the the statute only applies to people who mess with documents or records, basically. Uh, and of course, the appellate court overturned that. They had a, a kind of a weird dissent and they they all kind of had their own reasons why, but it, it, it they did rule in favor of the Department of Justice, ultimately. Um, and 15 other, dist- or sir, uh, excuse me, district court judges, right? 15 other district court judges upheld the DOJ's interpretation of this statute. But you tweeted that the two other cases that Fisher was consolidated with, Lang and Miller, are not being considered here. It's just Fisher. And you said, quote, I don't know why they'd take only Fisher and not the other two, but it suggests that perhaps this isn't uh, as major an intervention as is being portrayed and is about something narrower in just the Fisher case. What could a more narrow decision look like here? I mean, the short answer is I don't know. Uh, I still I, I haven't figured it out since I tweeted that. But it, it is really odd procedurally for the Supreme Court to take three cases that had been consolidated in the Court of Appeals. It's a single decision by the D.C. Circuit um, where the Justice Department in opposing certiorari had filed a single brief um, and had not suggested anywhere in the brief that there were material differences between the three cases. Um, even the Supreme Court's website, until the court granted cert, had actually had this weird designation suggesting the court was treating the three cases as related. To break them apart, you know, Allison, I think there's at least the possibility that something about Fisher's fact pattern, the fact that maybe he didn't enter the Capitol until later on January 6th, or 
you know, something weaker in the charges against him might be animating the justices. Of course, it could be something more prosaic. It could be that the justices just like the lawyers who are representing Fisher more, or they thought that the briefs on Fisher's behalf were better than the briefs on Lang and Miller's behalf. We won't know, or at least we won't even have a clue, I think, until the oral argument, um, which will probably be in April. But, you know, I think that either way, it does seem like the court wants to say something about the relationship between 1512C2 and 1512C1. And and I think the real evidence of that is that they're taking the case now, um, as opposed to waiting for these cases to go to trial, which is what would have happened if the D.C. Circuit decision had been left alone. So I think the court clearly wants to say something, um, whether it's going to be a repudiation of DOJ's approach to 1512C2 and, you know, hundreds of these January 6th cases, I think very much remains to be seen. That's a really interesting answer, and it, it dovetails into what's what's my biggest concern here. And honestly, in a week of a lot of interesting Supreme Court and appeals court action on on this uh, Trump Gen Six case, to me, this one was like this is the this is the potential real hand grenade, particularly in the trial schedule and yeah. what the future of this case looks like. So for for me, it's like what is Judge Chutkin going to do with the Trump case? In light of the fact that this thing is now in some form, wait, you know, we don't know, as you said, we don't know what they're really going to focus on, but it is certainly going forward on what is the core of the Trump prosecution, right? Two of the four uh, charges uh, in the Trump indictment. So, you know, I'm thinking, uh, talking to friends of mine and thinking about like, what's the range of possibilities here? Does she stay the entire case to see what guidance comes out of SCOTUS on this thing? Does she just ignore it? And forge ahead because you know Trump's not a party to the appeal, and uh, he he would just be one of many cases that would have to be adjusted in some way after the fact. Um, does she try to sever maybe the fifteen twelve counts out of the indictment and kind of put them on the shelf for a day later? I feel like that's super unlikely. Or and of course I'm I'm building up to the bucket I believe in here, which is does she try? You know it it seems like the the existence of this appeal is going to matter most in terms of how the jury is instructed in the Trump case, assuming it goes to trial and uh, goes to the jury. So does she, is there a lane here for her to construct jury instructions, of course, after hearing arguments on both sides and considering the briefs, but to come up with jury instructions that would be essentially consistent with whatever guidance comes out of, of uh, Fisher? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Two things are true. I think first, you know, Judge Chutkin has to hit the pause button anyway, while either the Supreme Court or the D.C. Circuit or both sort out the immunity defense question. Um, And so, you know, we're in a waiting pattern on the January 6th trial for Trump anyway, at least until that happens. But, you know, the the last thing you said, Andy, I think is exactly right. On the 1512 charges specifically, I think it would actually be pretty easy for Judge Chutkin to say, listen, the, the, the best possible scenario for former President Trump is that the Supreme Court embraces the reading advanced by Judge Nichols um, and by Judge Katsis in his panel dissent in the D.C. Circuit. And so I'm going, to, I'm going to assume for the sake of this proceeding that that's the government's burden, that the government has to show not just a general intent to obstruct the January 6th joint session, but picking up on the Nichols-Katzis reading, a specific intent 
to do so by manipulating, by impairing the evidence before the joint session. And of course, what, the great irony here is compared to the 300 some odd January 6 defendants for whom that's going to be a really heavy lift. Um, it's actually not that heavy a lift, <laughs> at least the way the indictment is written against former President Trump, because what's the evidence um, before the joint session? The evidence before the joint session are the electoral votes. And so insofar as former President Trump was part of a scheme to submit false, you know, disputed electoral votes from some number of states, um, that to me, is much closer to the heartland of even the very narrow reading of 1512c2 embraced by Judge Nichols and Judge Katzis. So, you know, I think Judge Judge Chutkin would be within her rights, assuming that the case comes back to her with a holding from the D.C. Circuit and or the Supreme Court that Trump is not immune. I think she'd be within her rights to say, I'm going to proceed on the, under the 1512c2 charges on the theory that Nichols and Katzis are right. Um, yep. And give and give and give Jack Smith the opportunity to prove to a jury that even under that more restrictive reading of 1512 C2, former President Trump is still guilty. Yeah. And 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 Jack Smith has brought this up in, in back in November in a filing uh, opposing Trump's motion to dismiss on statutory grounds. I went back and I looked at it because I was like, surely Jack has thought of this pro- potential more narrow reading. And of course, uh, he had. And he says in that filing, um, the certification proceeding that the defendant and his co-conspirators are alleged to have obstructed is required under the Electoral Count Act, which specifies procedures that rely on specific core records or documents. Those are certificates of votes from each state. Preventing the members of Congress from validating the state certificates constitutes evidence-focused obstruction and thus would violate Section 1512C2 even on a narrower view of the statute's scope. And that is particularly true where, as here, the criminal conduct included falsifying electoral certificates and transmitting them to Congress. So already built into Jack Smith's case in chief is this narrower understanding, Nichols' ruling on Fisher. Which is, which is the profound irony of the Supreme Court's intervention. Um, even in a scenario where the court goes all the way to the Nichols Katz's reading, and, and we should be clear, guys. There's no, there's no narrower reading. I mean, the right. that is the that is the alternative before the Supreme Court, and so that reading would have massive consequences for. I think I can say the sort of the lowest level January six defendants. Um, there are a number of cases where that was the principal charge. There are a number of guilty pleas where that was the only count yep, to which right. defendants pleaded guilty, um, and I think it would have no effect on Trump. Um, and so you'd, you'd have this scenario where, you know, it'd be, it would be portrayed as some massive, uh, I don't know, referendum by the Supreme Court on the January 6th prosecutions, when perhaps the most important of all the January 6th prosecutions gets through either way. Absolutely. And, and even on the much more, I think, the less likely scenario that their focus is on the kind of corrupt purpose side of the statute. Again, there is no one better situated to fit the requirements <laughs> of a corrupt purpose than the guy who orchestrated the the attack on the Capitol to save his own job. Well, the, I mean, so the irony on, the, on that point, Andrew, as you know, as well as anyone, is, you know, if there's debate about the mens rea, the corrupt purpose piece of 1512, it's about when my corrupt purpose can be solely to benefit somebody else. Right. Um, right? And in the case of former President Trump, his corrupt purpose or, you know, the alleged corrupt purpose of his unlawful acts was to benefit himself. <laughs> <laughs> 
everybody's corrupt purpose was to benefit <laughs> him. So, right. yeah. And Jack Smith actually just recently filed a notice uh, to Judge Chutkin about 404B evidence entered under exception, saying all of his things that he said publicly going back to 2012 about how he wasn't going to concede the election, he wasn't going to submit to a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, all that stuff can get in under 404B at rules of uh, evidence uh, under exceptions to that to the, those rules of evidence, and that he will prove, he will use all of that information to prove intent, motive, common plan, uh, et cetera. So as all of us were sitting around a couple months ago saying, he doesn't have to prove intent, he doesn't have to prove intent at all. He is going to, at least according to his own 404B filing. And, and I mean, I think, you know, the, the intent question also, of course, comes back into play when we start talking about the other charges in the indictment. So, you know, I, I think the moral of the story here is that Fisher is a really big deal, the sort of the, the further down the January 6th totem pole we go, and, and not that big a deal the further up the totem pole we go, um, where either there are other charges or you have more specific involvement in conduct that would violate even the narrow reading of that statute, or in President Trump's case, both. Right. Um, and, and I guess, you know, my concern then becomes less about the the case against former President Trump and more about the perception that I'm sure the Supreme Court doesn't want to reinforce, but might unavoidably reinforce, that if the court does narrow 1512c2, it will be portrayed as some massive repudiation of the January 6th prosecutions. Um which I think would be grossly unfair, right, compared to how many other charges are perfectly fine, right, compared to how many of the folks, even who would have a really good case that they're entitled to resentencing, are still guilty of crimes for what they did on January 6th, right? So, you know, I think the then making sure folks understand what the stakes are and aren't of Fisher, I think, is going to be really important as we move toward the oral argument, probably in March or April, and then the decision in May or June. All that considered, were you surprised that they took the case at all? It just doesn't yes. seem like there is like this roiling uh, massive controversy at the appellate level between interpretations. The, the the cases are actually fairly consistent, with the notable exception of Fisher and his and his and his uh, his co appellants. But uh, I was surprised they they weighed into this thing, especially now in light of the way it could impact the timing of the Trump cases. So the, the now is the real surprise to me. Um, not that the court was interested in this question at all. I mean, the unrelated to January 6th, the Supreme Court has been interested in the last eight, nine, ten years in these very kinds of debates about federal criminal statutes, just to sort of put this in context where you have, a, you know, a series of provisions that are written in response to a specific episode, in this case, the you know, Enron and WorldCom mm -hmm. accounting scandals and financial services scandals. And so you have some specific prohibitions and then a more general catch-all, you know, obstruction or other, you know, sort of type of charge. And the court has been worried about whether that catch-all charge um, is too broad. So too there's broad. a case from 2015 called Yates, um, which had no real political valence. It was just a weird case about a commercial fisherman. Um, where the court actually read a statute that says, um, you know, any the destruction of any tangible object can be obstruction in this context, and said, no, 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 the tangible object has to be one on which you can record data. So you have a 5-4 decision from the Supreme Court in 2015 that a fish is not a tangible object. Um, <laughs> right? Like, the court has been on these statutory adventures even before anything about January 6th or Trump 
was on the radar. Um, that's why I'm not surprised they took the issue. I'm surprised they took it now because, I mean, as Allison mentioned at the top, the cases, none of these cases, and, you know, these three cases, Fisher, Lang, and Miller, have gone to trial. Um, Judge Nichols had dismissed the indictments. The government had appealed. The D.C. Circuit's reversal would have meant we'd go back to Judge Nichols for the cases to go forward. And if I'm the Supreme Court, I'd much rather resolve the scope of the statute once I know what these specific defendants have actually been convicted of, um, as yeah. opposed to what they've been indicted for. That's a great point. That's a great so, point. You know, so to me, it's, it's the fact that these are interlocutory um, that really seems confounding about why the court's stepping in, whereas I would not have been surprised um, on the far side of convictions. Right. Yep. For the court to say, actually, this is the kind of thing, you know, no, there's no circuit split, but this is what we do. Yeah. And I guess it's consistent with or with the kind of overall sense that they are concerned about, particularly about these corruption cases yep. in the context of political corruption. You can go back to McDonald. It's the same sort of thing. I know that's I'm sure that weighs heavily on Jack Smith's mind these days with his own connection to those cases. No doubt. Um, and I think, I mean, the, 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 you know, the, the court comes in for some criticism, especially from the left, um, that in those cases, the court tends to be bend over backwards um, and yeah. actually maybe even abandon some, abandon some of its textualism um, in defense of white collar defendants. Um, but, you know, I think it, it's worth stressing that whatever you think of the pattern in the, in the sort of abstract, um, this is not a bolt from the blue, right? That it's the timing that's weird here, not the court's interest in general in the precise problem of a sort of catch-all obstruction provision tacked onto a statute that was more specifically about evidence impairment. Especially since it really wouldn't impact the Trump case that much. I mean, I, I could understand and being like, all right, let's clear up whatever Katzis and Pan and everybody was talking about in the in the appellate court. Let's just clear this up before the Trump trial of the millennia starts. But, the, you know, the, I, I don't see that being the reason either. So, yeah, it's kind of baffling. Let, let me say one last thing about that. I mean, and I wrote about this a bit in my um, Supreme Court newsletter uh, this week, which is um, the timing of both of these things, the sort of the Jack Smith appeal of the immunity question and the Grant and Fisher both coming this week. I actually think the best case there is that the, the sort of the best evidence there is that that's a coincidence, um, that even though these things happen within two days of each other, the way that the court operates internally, um, it's really hard to envision that at the time the justices voted to grant Fisher, which is most likely on December 8th, um, that they were thinking at all about, you know, the immunity question or, you know, Jack Smith coming to them. He hadn't yet. Um, to sort of hustle up on the immunity question. So I think it's just really a coincidence that these are both in the water at the same time. And to me, the the only sort of unusual thing about what the court has done in Fisher is sort of taking only Fisher, not the other two, and taking yeah. them now as opposed to waiting. And AG, I, you know, the, the notion that that's because they want to resolve this in advance of the Trump case, I don't know. I, I think that's probably belied by the time, by the coincidental timing. Mm-hmm. Um but also because had they done their homework, as you have, right, they'd know that of all the January 6th cases, the one in which this is least likely to cause the problem is Trump. For well, sure. I appreciate that. I appreciate that, Professor. I learned from the best, i.e. you and Andy. So thank you <laughs> so much. Him, not me. For being, for being on here today uh, uh, joining us, explaining this uh, in, a, in a way that everybody can understand. We really appreciate you. Everybody, 
pick first of all read the newsletter second of all pick up the shadow docket it makes a great holiday gift absolutely um, absolutely yeah it, do it really does um and there's so much important information in there uh, and follow steve on all the social media we appreciate your time today steve vladek thanks so much steve thank you guys everybody stick around we'll be right back Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said... Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. Okay, there were other important docket entries this week that kind of got buried in all the SCOTUS news. Uh, one of those was DOJ's opposition to Trump's motion to compel. So, AG, you're going to remember this. He, Trump filed a motion to compel all this crazy stuff or to basically force the government to go find these things and produce them to him, Trump, in discovery. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah, we went over that kind of line yeah, by line. Like he wanted. Cra- yeah, he. I mean, stuff that doesn't exist. It's yeah. There's bizarre. a green man on the moon who says he knows who Philip votes. You got to get the his flash. statement. I need his ring because <laughs> you know what? Just nonsensical stuff. So now we have the government's response, and as you would expect, they they didn't go lightly on this thing. They weighed in uh, pretty in a pretty decisive manner. So got a couple of good quotes here. First, they say the defendant's view of discovery is untethered to any statute, rule, or case, and it lacks both specificity and justification. 
The information he seeks is not in the government's possession. In many cases, it does not appear to exist. And in any event, is not discoverable pursuant to Brady, Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 16, or any other authority. The defendant's <laughs> motions should be denied. Such How do you really opening. feel? How do you really feel about it? Tell <laughs> us. Don't hold back. Great opening paragraph. And we are, I am stupider for having heard it. I award you zero points. <laughs> I, I want the motion to be denied, and I want to be, be able to not have ever heard it. I want the memory to be erased of this nonsense. Okay, so they go on to say, the defendant seeks to add to the prosecution team. And note here, my own note, that's basically how, as a defendant, you make an argument that the prosecution is responsible for turning over evidence. The standard is like, any entity that is effectively a part of the prosecution team. So in the typical case, records in the possession of the FBI must be turned over because the FBI is part of the prosecution team. That that team can be expanded based on the case. So if maybe DOJ was prosecuting a case and they had worked with, I don't know, IRS investigators, IRS, part of the prosecution team, therefore the documents and stuff in their possession is relevant to the discovery obligations and must be turned over. Okay. So with that, they say the defendant seeks to add to the prosecution team a separate investigation, distinct components of the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security, and its quarter million employees, the nation's entire military apparatus, three million strong, the 18 federal agencies that comprise the intelligence community and a defunct committee of a separate branch of government. <laughs> the defendant already has received the discovery in the possession of the government and agencies that are, quote, closely aligned with the prosecution. <laughs> <laughs> and a partridge in a pear tree. Mm -hmm. The court should deny defendants' discovery demands because he fails to establish their materiality. This is another grounds that you can attack the demand on. If it's not material to the prosecution, it it can't be considered, you know, part of the government's obligation. They go on, in support of his motion to compel, the defendant suggests that the government relied only on a selection of politically biased officials, but he does not and cannot substantiate this theatrical claim. <laughs> to the contrary, as the defendant is aware from the discovery that has been provided, the government asked every pertinent witness, including the former DNI, the former acting secretary of DHS, the former acting deputy secretary of DHS, the former CISA director, the former acting CISA director, former CISA senior cyber counsel, former national security advisor, the former deputy national security advisor, the former chief of staff to the National Security Council, the former chairman of the Election Assistance Commission, presidential intelligence briefer, the former Secretary of Defense and former senior DOJ leadership, if they were aware of any evidence that a domestic or foreign actor flipped a single vote in a voting machine during the presidential election. The answer from every single official was no. <laughs> <laughs> no. That really shows how broad this investigation is, too. Which right? is also the same reason why Trump failed in 60 lawsuits to prove that that had <laughs> happened back when he was still president. And all those people we just listed worked for him. Mm -hmm. Even he couldn't come up with a single person or a single piece of evidence 
that that stood for the opposite, that there mm-hmm. was a vote turned over by anyone. Now, the next I, part is my yeah. favorite, because this is where Jack goes after Trump's contention that it was Russia. It's all Russia's fault. And this, Russia, is, my, Russia, Russia. this is my favorite. Okay, here they say, the defendant's argument that foreign countries spun up the defendant's followers and caused the capital siege is a thinly veiled argument of third-party guilt. Evidence of third-party guilt normally fails the balancing test prescribed by Rule 403, where the accused does not sufficiently connect the third party to the crime, the probative value of the evidence is speculative, or the evidence of the third party's guilt would not actually exculpate the defendant. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's important. Even if the actions of a third party could legally excuse the defendant's crimes, and they cannot, the defendant's assertion that foreign countries somehow inspired the capital siege is both speculative and far-fetched, particularly in light of his own deliberate actions that caused the attack. Bing. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he was working on behalf of Russia. Okay, I've said that before and I got a lot of trouble for it, so let's just move on. (laughs) The defendant invokes a completely unrelated event, the SolarWinds attack, to support his speculative and conspiratorial theory that there was foreign influence in the election contrary to the universal consensus of the officials he appointed. Even if the defendant is correct that Russia breached federal networks as a part of the SolarWinds incident, he omits two critical details. One, states, not the federal government, operated the machines that were used for voting and tabulation. And two, the SolarWinds attack had nothing to do with the 2020 election. I love that. Number two, you're dumb. You're just dumb. (laughs) Yeah, it's just not relevant. Uh, The defendant has moved to compel production of the classified version of the ICA, which stands for Intelligence Community Assessment, on Russian meddling in the 2016 election, along with, quote, all source materials, which would include classified assets, methods, and operational details. None of these materials are in the possession of the prosecution team, nor are they relevant to the charges in the indictment. Hmm. The court should decline the defendant's request for an unprecedented expansion of the prosecution team beyond reason or basis and deny the defendant's demands for additional discovery because he has failed to establish the materiality of any of them. <laughs> yeah. And 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 they went on to pick apart his um, you know, his argument about the when the uh the head of I think co-conspirator four had a briefing. Jeffrey Clark had a briefing with the DNI. Um, He wanted all the materials there. And they're like, you have them all. Um, I mean, he picked apart every single thing that Donald Trump was going at. Those are just the major ones that I was really, um, you know, that we were like kind of focused on in the last episode when we went over that motion to compel. So there's a, it's a whole long 45 page dismantling throw down yeah <laughs> it's a 45 page thrashing mm-hmm. so if you it's get a chance kinda, it's got to be kind of dispiriting a little bit to be on the trump team you file your motion you get all high and mighty about election interference and then you get this full-on smackdown you're like oh god that kind of hurts yeah Must, so if you want right? to read the whole thing you can just google um jack smith's motion in opposition to donald trump's motions to compel and you'll you'll be able to you find right it there. It's fantastic. Next up, the DOJ's notice of expert witnesses. And this was a huge story this week. This took over the news cycle for like at least a day. And Andy, this has to do with that Twitter search warrant 
we've been yep. going over, where Jack Smith sought and received all of Trump's Twitter metadata, including direct messages, location information, login information, who was using it on what phone, from what IP address. And Jack Smith notices to the court, meaning it's not a motion, really. He's just letting the court know mm -hmm. that he intends to call three expert witnesses. Expert one will testify about the location history data for Google accounts and devices associated with individuals who moved on January 6, 2021, from an area at or near the ellipse to an area encompassing the Capitol. His or her, the expert's testimony, will describe and explain the resulting graphical representations of this data, and it will aid the jury in understanding the movements of individuals toward the Capitol area during and after the defendant's speech at the ellipse. And this sounds to me like they're trying to prove that Trump's actions moved the crowd. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a it's a goldmine of data. This this uh, Google collection generally has become a major, major factor in many criminal cases. Yep. And expert two is kind of like a piggyback on expert one. They're going to testify about the process of determining device location, how we do it, the collection and use of location history data by Google, and location history data produced in response to the search warrant and included in the graphical representation prepared by expert one. So it's kind of like a bolstery witness. Yeah. So I think important to note here. So we talk about evidence all the time and what might be used at trial. So there's a, there's a process. It's not just about like you have a piece of evidence and then you talk about it at trial. You have to enter it into evidence in court. And in order to do that, you first have to lay the foundation of the evidence. And you do that by putting somebody on a witness who can testify about how that piece of evidence was collected, where it came from, what its provenance is, whatever, whatever. If that evidence is a business record, something that comes, you know, you, like in this case, they dropped a subpoena on Google, they got that data, that data is a Google business record. So now you have to have people from Google who will come in and explain to the jury, lay the foundation for it, explain to the jury, like, how is that evidence actually collected in Google systems? What does it signify? You know, that sort of thing. Yep. And yeah. Then, and you and have to do it every it. time. I mean, yeah, you really do. Um, it, the the alternative it. is the defense can stipulate to that. Mm -hmm. I don't expect we'll see a lot of stipulation in this trial. It requires some degree of uh, practicality and uh, cooperation. And that seems to be out the window. <laughs> yeah. Now, expert three is the big one. This is the one that I'm interested in. I mean, I'm interested in all of them, but mm -hmm. expert three has knowledge, skill, experience, training, and education beyond the ordinary layperson regarding the analysis of cellular phone data, including the use of Twitter and other applications on cell phones. The government expects that expert three will testify that he or she, one, extracted and processed data from the White House cell phones used by the defendant and one other individual, who we will call, they say in the or not in the motion here, individual one. I should say the notice, not the motion. And notice that's different from co-conspirator one. Right. This is individual one. Number two, the how um, she he or she reviewed and analyzed data on the defendant's phone and on individual one's phone, including analyzing images found on the phones and websites visited. Three, mm -hmm. determine the usage of those phones throughout the post-election period, including on and around January 6th. And four, specifically identified the periods of time during which the defendant's phone was unlocked and the Twitter application was open. 
on January 6th. And and so that says here's we're going to prove that it was Trump who sent that tweet. Right. Who's individual one? And, and more broadly, what Trump was looking at on Twitter. He can't, you know, this is all going to go to what was in his head. What did he know? What did how much of what was happening on the grounds of the Capitol was he aware of? Well, if you can show that his Twitter scrolling history minute by minute, second by second, you can really paint a very rich picture of what his eyeballs were seeing and what he was thinking about at that time. The expert is likely, I, I'm going to guess it's like an either an agent or an FBI employee who does this every day. This an is analyst, what right? This, this is an analyst who yeah. does this stuff. This is the person who, after the other two laid the foundation, this is the person who actually gives you the interpretation, how the data is relevant to this case. Uh, it could be a private sector expert. There there are certainly people that do that, but um, oftentimes the prosecution relies on government employees to do it. Mm, yeah. And and this is kind of almost like at the heart, right, of the of showing that he incited the insurrection. And- yeah. Think about this. Think about the Gen 6 hearings. <clears throat> we heard from White House employees who could testify, yeah, I walked into his – I was walking back, you know, into the um, – what is it? The uh, – the dining room. The dining right? room, yeah. The dining room off the Oval Office. And he was in there and he seemed to be there from this time to that time and the TV was on. So that's, you know, it's decent testimony that he was watching the events, was aware of what was happening. This goes a hundred times more granular than that. Yeah. This will tell you like, yeah, and at this minute, hour, minute and second of the day, he went on Google and he searched, you know, could I be guilty of incitement? <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever. I right. made that up. That's, How do I uh, poison my chief of staff? Right. <laughs> Where do I get the most well-done steak in DC? I don't know, whatever, uh, but you're going to get like, that's why like, I always feel like search history is just deadly because it, it tells is. you what was in the mind of the person you're thinking, you're talking about. So this could be really interesting stuff. Yeah. Search history has come in handy for me in divorce cases. So yeah. Mm-hmm. There you go. We won't there go into go. we won't go. go into granular detail, but <laughs> he looked up some stuff he shouldn't have looked up. <laughs> also, something's going on with Eastman, but you know, well, well what's the story first of all with Eastman and his disbarment? Yeah, well, it's interesting. We learned that Jack Smith is still scrutinizing John Eastman. He requested and received all of the deposition transcripts from Eastman's disbarment trial in California. Now, you know, it could just be something to have in their back pocket in the event that they are cross-examining Eastman in this case, or who knows, a later case. Well, that's what I think it is. Because, you know, I, I don't think that they're still investigating Eastman. I mean, they might, based on what they find in the deposition transcripts, there might be other threads to to go down. But I personally, I feel like this is like why Jack got the January 6th transcripts. Yeah. He already had that information, but you have to make sure that your that the testimony is consistent from from agency to agency to or court to agency or congress yeah. like like we talked about in the Durham investigation where uh, Jim Baker gave kind of conflicting testimony to to mm-hmm. different entities which impeaches him as a witness right now i don't That's think right. Eastman's going to be a witness but you definitely want to make sure that uh, everything that you know if you're going after something specific that that it can, he, you know it, that your evidence can't be impeached from inconsistent testimony elsewhere 
Yeah, these are all statements on the record, right? They were uh, recorded, it, you know, maybe audio recorded, maybe just transcribed, but they were sworn. That's the important thing. So yeah. Eastman can't walk away from things that he said in these uh, depositions. So um, if he's a wit, you know, he's pretty, if you listen to his quotes recently, he, this dude hasn't backed off an iota. He is still like, I think the election was stolen and la 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 la. So it's possible he ends up on the stand as a, defense witness. And in that case, the government will go after him. Oh my gosh, they're going to go after him. They're going to look for every possible inconsistency he's ever walked into. And this could certainly provide examples of that. Yep. Yep. hundred um, percent. All right. Uh, we have more to get to. We have to still talk about Florida. Wow. <laughs> After all this. What's and we'll Florida? Head... <laughs> Where? What? We'll head down there uh, as soon as we take this quick break. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said... Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Let's head to our favorite place, Florida, where the uh, trial for the Mar-a-Lago Mar documents will be happening sometime this century. <laughs> this is from Caitlin Polance, your colleague over at CNN. Andrew, yes. this is great reporting. Uh, three months after the FBI seized classified records from Mar-a-Lago, a longtime employee of Donald Trump and his private club Mar-a-Lago quit his job. Within days, the former president did something he rarely does. 
He called the former employee on his cell phone to ask why he was leaving after two decades of working at the resort. Now, the employee told the former president, I have other business stuff I want to pursue. And the message later got back to the former employee that Trump thought he was a good man. Sounds like Mm. Flynn, doesn't it? (laughs) The former employee was a witness to several episodes that special counsel Jack Smith included in his indictment, charging the former president with uh, mishandling or I should say retaining national defense information. Now, uh, this employee also helped move several boxes for Trump and was also privy to conversations referenced in the indictment between Trump and his co-defendants, De Oliveira and Nauta, mm-hmm. putting the former employee in a unique group of Mar-a-Lago staffers who could be in a position to provide valuable information to investigators. This guy got his own lawyer, right? Yeah. But Trump was still reaching out to him and having people reach out to him saying, we'll pay for your lawyer. Um, De Oliveira was the one who gave this employee's phone number to Donald Trump. And De Oliveira told this former employee that he was sure Trump would love to see him at an upcoming Trump-hosted golf tournament and asked if he would like complimentary tickets. And on another occasion, De Oliveira communicated to the former employee that his job is still available. If you want to, anytime you want to come back to Mar-a-Lago, you still have a job, buddy. Trump thinks you're a good man. That was De Oliveira. And then Nauda told this employee that he could come back to work at Mar-a-Lago. And he showed up at the former employee's gym in person with De Oliveira. Like they were stalking this dude. Totally. Totally. And, I mean, mm. you know, when I, when I first heard this, I thought that's gotta be UCL Tavares, but I don't think it is. No, now. I think it's a, the other employee, right? The one who had the photo of the stuff spilled all over the ground. Yeah. I think it was the go between employee. Um, because I think if it were Tavares, they would have said it's Tavares or he, you know, yeah. he's the guy who got his own lawyer after, the hearing for conflicts of interest in DC. Yep. And none of that was uh, brought in here. So I think that this is the, that other employee, but he's out there calling him, offering him tickets, saying you're a good man. We'll pay for your lawyer. Like this is obstructiony, but the thing is straight up, straight up mob tactics, straight up uh, witness intimidation, witness interference. Jack Smith is asking about this though. So very, very hard cases to bring, even yep. though we all know exactly what's going on here. <laughs> right. And the guy in the center of it, our our friend Don, he is smart enough not to get personally engaged. So being able to, holding him accountable for this, very, very, very hard to do, even though it's like happening in plain sight and people are going to be frustrated to hear me say that. Um, as an agent, like this stuff happens all the time. It's infuriating. And what you do literally on the ground, this comes up mostly in mob cases. And so you do everything humanly possible to separate the witness from the influence of these third parties. But it's Mm -hmm. hard to do. I mean, it's, you know, life is what it is. People have to have jobs. They're not all going to move out of their house and, you know, go into witness protection just because they're scooped up in a case like this. So it's, it's very frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. And in some breaking news from CNN, a binder containing highly classified information related to, of course, Russian election interference Your went favorite. missing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it never goes away. It's evergreen. Uh, it went missing at the end of Donald Trump's presidency, raising alarms among intelligence officials that some of the most closely guarded national security secrets from the U.S. and its allies could be exposed. So if this story sounds familiar, we've known about the binder since Cassidy Hutchinson testified about it to the January 6th committee. 
And of course, she wrote about it in her book. But what's new here from CNN is that the binder was not recovered during the search at Mar-a-Lago and the SISI, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, was briefed on this as recently as 2022. And Allison, there is great significance to the fact that that brief occurred. This goes all the way back to the National Security Act of 1947, which created a statutory obligation on the part of intelligence agencies to brief Congress about things that that uh, qualified as intelligence failures. Oh. Yeah. So this was always like one of those guardrails that you kept in the back of your mind as you were doing things and, you know, operations don't always go the way you want. And this was kind of the threshold of if it was that serious, then we actually have to go tell Congress about it. So it tells you how serious uh, the community thinks about the loss of this binder. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So the binder contained raw intelligence the U.S. and its NATO allies collected on Russians and Russian agents, including sources and methods that informed the U.S. government's assessment that Russian President Vladimir Putin sought to help Trump win the 2016 election, sources tell CNN. Um, Now, CNN says the intelligence was so sensitive that lawmakers and congressional aides with top secret security clearances were able to review the material only at CIA headquarters in Langley, where their work scrutinizing it was itself kept in a locked safe. That's the way you do these things at what we call a reading room. You have stuff that's so dangerous, so sensitive, you don't want it to leave the building. You certainly don't want it left over at Congress. You keep it in a skiff, in this case at Langley. You make the congressional folks come over to read it. And if they take notes about what they're reading, they have to leave the notes with you. They're not even allowed to walk away with the notes they take. And they lock those in a safe? Yeah, that gets locked in a skiff. Uh, It all gets kept together and it's held even under higher um, restrictions than typical TS material. This stuff is typically what we call compartmented intelligence. We talked a lot about that after the search warrant at Mar-a-Lago. Some of the stuff down there had uh, the indicators of compartmentalized intelligence on it. In any case, Hutchinson wrote in a book that she believes that Meadows was the last person with a binder. This is the same binder that Trump wrote the January 19th declassification order for and ultimately assigned Cash Patel and John Solomon, right-wing journalists, to be custodians of while negotiating with the National Archives. Solomon claims that on the night of January 19th, Meadows invited him to the White House to review several hundred pages of the declassified binder. One of Solomon's staffers was even allowed to leave the White House with the declassified records in a paper bag. But congressional reps had to go to Langley in a skiff and couldn't leave with their notes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is, is, you know, as we said, it's not a brand new story, but these details about how, in my estimation anyway, how recklessly the former administration handled this material um, is really shocking. You know, and, I, and I've described this before. I know um, from my personal experience with uh, overseeing the team that wrote the ICA, the Intelligence Community Assessment on essentially Russian interference in the 2016 election. You know, that document was drafted based on an assignment given to us by President Obama for all three agencies, the Bureau, NSA, and CIA, 
to collect everything, every piece of intelligence they had that might shed light on what Russia did after, you know, this was after the election, of course, that might shed light on what Russia did in the election and what were they trying to accomplish. Hmm. And so each one of us contributed the most sensitive, most important source material we had. Um, so the idea that some of that incredibly sensitive material, which at the time was the best stuff we had to indicate literally what was going on inside the Kremlin, uh, the idea that those sources could now or were at some point in jeopardy because of the way the material was handled by the White House is just, uh, it turns my stomach. Yeah. And I've been thinking about this binder for a while. You know, I know Murray Wass had written up a, a, a big 30,000 word story on it uh, with the John Solomon having these, you know, certain papers delivered to him. And I know Sarah Burris wrote it up at Raw Story. We, I, Marcy Wheeler's been on it for, for yeah. a really long time. Um, but, I, you know, I always just the first thing that crossed my mind is the reason that Trump would want all this stuff is so that he could destroy the incriminating stuff or at least keep it out of the government's hands or have it or know what the government had on him. Um, yeah. You know, it's just, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of frightening. Um, yeah. Now, you know, and, and NBC is also now confirming that um, the sissy was briefed on this. It's almost two years ago. It was the beginning of 2022, I guess, uh, according to NBC. So yeah, like uh, that's kind of why I wanted to, ask you about like the protocols for when you have to go and brief Congress. Yeah. I mean, and then, and then layer on top of that, this potentially catastrophic loss of intelligence sources, which could be, I'm saying that the world of possibility here could be technical. And then you, and you could, by the exposure of it, you lose access and lose the intelligence that comes from that access, or it could be human, which means those humans die in Russia. That's how the Russians treat people they uncover as having, you know, reported to foreign intelligence officers uh, against Russia. So the idea that you would take those chances on what is essentially, and I'll quote Fiona Hill here, a political errand, right? Like that's the purpose mm -hmm. of his continued obsession with that investigation and with the information relative to it. He was pissed off about the fact that we had done that investigation from day one, because he felt like in some way it embarrassed him and it undermined his victory, which, I mean, it did not. It was simply an intelligence uh, investigation to figure out what our adversary was doing to us. But nevertheless, in his world, it's a personal insult like everything else is. And so, you know, we can't sit here and say with perfect clarity what he wanted to declassify that for, but we can say there are pretty good other analogs, right? We know that he used some of the intelligence, the classified, highly uh, sensitive intelligence he took to Mar-a-Lago for the purpose of trying to, you know, uh, have vengeance upon his enemies like Mark right. Milley, mm -hmm. you know, the infamous Iran uh, plans uh, that he leaked to reporters in an effort to try to make Mark Milley look stupid. Which he was wrong about. Of course, none of that exonerated him from anything. I mean, right, and <laughs> nor would nor would the ICA have, have cleared up his mind over this issue. I'll just say that. Um, but nevertheless, you can be sure that these risks were taken in pursuit of mollifying his small-minded, never-ending pursuit of vengeance and retaliation. So, thanks. Yeah. Well done. My feeling is, is that it was a disorganized pile and Meadows has some of it and um, some of it made its way down to Mar-a-Lago and it's, 
you know, somewhere in those 20 to 30 boxes that were never recovered. I don't know. Um, but, um, that's, that's what the reporting is here, but that's the problem is we don't know where it is. That's right. Meadows attorney is very, very forcefully denying the CNN reporting and saying, Artfully, he what he says is Meadows never mishandled classified yeah. evidence, which I find that almost impossible to believe. Yeah, and but, he doesn't say that he doesn't have it. Like right, <laughs> right. And any any so who knows? You mm. know, Meadows is capable of anything. Um, uh, he's you know a very slippery character. This we now know. Uh, but whatever. Uh, it the the significance here is the potential danger to U.S. national security and. Um, how the former administration, you know, created that risk, really. Yeah, 100%. All right. Well, that is the bulk of the news. Uh, It's time for listener questions. If you have a question, we have a link in the show notes for you to follow uh, where you can fill out a form to send us your questions. Andy, what do we have today? We have two. One's really short. Oh, and by the way, if you just want a little bit of good news, Mm -hmm. the verdict is in on Rudy Giuliani in the Shea Moss, uh, Ruby Freeman defamation case. $145 $145 million. That's going to take them a little while to put that together, I think. Mm-hmm. Yikes. Man, that'll pay for a lot of scotch or not. <laughs> Good luck, Rudy. Couldn't have a nicer guy. Okay. So questions for the week. Uh, there was one that came in. This came in last week. And I don't actually have the phrasing of the question because I totally screwed it up in my work on the spreadsheet, but it comes from somebody who identifies themselves as I-A-I-N-H-I-L. I don't know what that means, but here's your question. You basically asked, are there, does the First Amendment limit hate speech? Like what can happen to someone who uses hate speech? And the short answer is it does not. Um, you can say, you know, whatever hateful thing you want about anyone or any group, any religion, whatever you want here, as long as it's just speech. Now, if you say something hateful about someone while you're in the act of committing a violent crime against them, chances are you could be charged with a hate crime and Mm -hmm. the speech is used as evidence in the proof of that crime. But generally speaking, hate speech is not prohibited here. You can say whatever you want here. And I know that Drives Europeans and Canadians and everyone else a little bit nuts, but dudes, that's what we're all about. That's where we come from. Well, my first encounter with that and try and having to understand the First Amendment from kind of both sides, like speech that I don't like, was with the Westboro Baptist Church. Yeah, perfect example. You'll remember, uh, I think I think it went up to the Supreme Court. It was a higher court that decided that they were allowed to picket Marine Corps funerals with disgusting, homophobic yeah. signs. Um, and you know, I was incensed that that was allowed, but also understood, um, that that is free speech Yeah, and, and, and it, it sucks, but you know, that's, (laughs) that's what the first amendment protects right now. If you go, if you go and start beating somebody up, of course, then it's not, Yeah. yeah, then we're out of first amendment territory and we're into assault. You got to embrace both sides of it. You can't just have free speech for you and people who think like you. You got to have it for everybody. There's plenty of websites, neo-Nazi websites, you know, very, very well-known big ones out there. And they are filled with hate speech. They sell advertising. They're not hiding. It's perfectly um, legal here. So I'm not going to say what they are because I don't want to, I don't want to give you any suggestions. But anyway, that's how that question gets answered. All right. So second question 
comes from David. David says, I'm a devoted listener to Clean Up, Jack, and Daily Beans. The breadth of your knowledge and the clarity of your thinking and expression are stunning and invaluable. Oh, good one. Thank you, David. You have Thank crossed you. the threshold necessary <laughs> to have a question read on Jack. Well done, my friend. David says, here's my question. Much comment is centered on Judge Cannon's scheduling the documents case for trial in May, but slow walking procedures so as to effectively make that date untenable. Some have speculated that she wants to prevent Fonnie Willis from using that window and thus block the Georgia trial until after the election. What if DA Willis went ahead and asked for a date in that window anyway? It would force Cannon to, quote, shit or get off the pot, close quote, either go forward with the trial as scheduled or give up the window and let the Georgia case proceed. Um, so basically says, can she do this? Would she? What are your thoughts? Basically, these courts do not coordinate with each other in the in the most general sense. And Fonnie Wills could definitely ask for a trial date in that period, gambling on the fact that the Mar-a-Lago case will not actually go forward then. Generally, courts are not going to schedule a trial in a time period that the defendant in their trial, you know, is facing something in another jurisdiction. And it's not because the other court is more important or more serious or or anything like that. It's just because they are going to go out of their way not to put the defendant in their case in a conflict between courts. So generally, they try to be aware of what the defendant is facing in other jurisdictions and work around those things. But nothing would stop Fawny Willis from making the calculation that it's unlikely that Trump, the Trump Marlago case would go forward um, in May and then, and then scheduling, you know, asking for a date in that period. Yeah, she's going to schedule when she thinks is appropriate to schedule. And the mm-hmm. judge is going to agree or disagree and schedule when he thinks it's appropriate to That's schedule. Right. Yeah. And then the chips fall where they may. Um, I don't think that the Mar-a-Lago documents case is happening in 2024. That is my personal belief. I think that the January 6th trial will go. I think the Fonnie Willis trial will start uh, in 2024. Um, But I don't think the documents case is even going to be a consideration in any of those trials. I think, I mean, you know, it's almost like get in line. Manhattan DA has a trial he needs to do for the falsification in the Stormy Daniels case. Um, you know, there's there's other uh, things to consider um, when we when we're talking about you know Trump's criminal trials. Um, so it the chips are going to fall where they may. I think that all of the state cases will probably defer or I guess cede to whenever Judge Chutkin goes. I think that that's going to be the number one case that everybody wants to see done first. Yeah, and she's been the most proactive in in grabbing a time frame and holding on to it, running her case, you know, along the, uh, with the intent of hitting that date, you know, it's probably going to get slid a little bit now, but that's, that comes with the territory. So I, I agree with, with, uh, all of your predictions there. I also think that judge Cannon has indicated her, I don't know what it is, slowness, reluctance to move forward, whatever you want to call it. So she's likely to say, oh, that case is going, okay, then we'll move mine back. Oh, another yeah. one jumped in there or we'll move mine back again. So mm-hmm. yeah. there's really no way to tell uh, how much it could be delayed except to say a lot. Yep. I, I concur. Um, yeah. Thank you for those questions. If you have questions, we have a link in the show notes 
to a form you can fill out and send in to us. We appreciate your questions. I know this show is long today, but we had a lot to go over and a lot to explain. I want to thank Steve Vladek again for joining us. Please pick up his book, The Shadow Docket. Uh, while you're at it, get The Threat by Andy McCabe. I have my Hell signed yeah. copy. Nice. Another excellent holiday gift. Um, and, uh, you know, we, again, really appreciate you and uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, I don't believe we're taking a break uh, for the holidays because we, we record on on Fridays. So I, I think all the shows will be in place unless you have uh, uh, some time that you need to take off, my friend. No, I'm here. Let's charge forward. Let's do take it. Take the hill. Take the hill. Take the hill. If Jack can work on Thanksgiving, <laughs> we can work during That's Christmas. Right. That's right. I have no life. This is all I do anyway. So, <laughs> Anyway, thanks so much. Uh, I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch you will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.